Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Luke chapter 24, starting at verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognising him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when, they, and when they did not find his body, they came back, saying they had seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is towards evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled and why did doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marvelling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and we're continually in the temple blessing God. Well, isn't it nice to be here? And we have a great weekend ahead of us to think about some really important things. Important things for us, important things for people throughout the world. Um, It's an important weekend. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to pray and lead us in prayer for the whole weekend and for coming to God's word as we begin. Our Father, we're really thankful to you for the privilege it is to be here. Thank you for making us your people, for bringing us into your family through the glorious death of our Lord Jesus Christ and his glorious resurrection and ascension. We thank you for everything you've done for us and we pray, Lord, that this weekend you will help us to think about what it's going to look like in our lives 
that we might serve you as your people. Father, thank you for each other. We pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be helpful to each other this weekend. And we ask, Lord, that you'll help us to be helpful to people from all over the world with the good news of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why should Christians living in Australia think about going to other parts of the world to serve the nations with the gospel? I have been wanting to teach this topic at Lyft for about five years. And they haven't let me for, for five years, but I'm really excited because I learned by, by preaching. And I've really wanted to dig into this one, and I'm so excited that we're digging in this weekend. I think this is a fantastic topic for us to be thinking about. You see, for, for a while now, I've been committed to serving the nations with the gospel. I've been very keen that campus Bible study should serve the nations with the gospel. My struggle has not been about wanting or desiring to serve the nations with the gospel. My struggle has been about why. Why we should serve the nations with the gospel. Have you given that question much thought? Why should Christians living in Australia think about going to other parts of the world to serve other nations with the gospel? Now, if you wanted to find an answer to that question in the Bible, where would you go? I imagine you might quickly find yourself at the go-to text for this kind of question. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, I think it's up on the screen. Matthew 28, 18 to 20, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. It's commonly called the Great Commission. Do you think the Great Commission is the great theological justification for serving the nations. Have you noticed that the Great Commission gets employed as theological justification for quite a lot of things? Hmm. As I was planning this sermon, I was sent a report from Sydney Anglican Head Office about newcomer numbers in Sydney Anglican churches. There is a bit of concern because newcomers coming to Sydney Anglican churches are less than they were five years ago. So they commissioned this report up on the screen and they, um, they looked into it and they've released their findings about welcoming newcomers better. On the very morning that I was putting this sermon together, the email came in and hit my inbox saying that I should have a read of this report. Now, I know that you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't let emails distract you from the important work you're doing. But I did. I kind of went, oh yeah, I'd like to have a bit of a look at this report. And I clicked on it. Um, and I started reading about welcoming newcomers. This is what I read. Next slide. And I'll read it to you just in case it's a bit small there. Churches are to have an outward focus, showing the love of Christ to all and making known the gospel of Jesus Christ in their wider community. It has been said that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of those who are not members. One primary measure of the connection between church and community is the presence of those who have entered fresh into church life, known as newcomers to church life. There are, I'm still reading, there are both theological and sociological imperatives for churches to take seriously the issue of newcomers to church life. From a theological viewpoint, Churches are to do more than simply maintain their place in society. They are to be mission-oriented, reaching out to those who do not know God. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19-20, directs us to go into all the world to make disciples of all nations. Becoming a newcomer to church life is often accompanied by a process of Christian conversion and becoming a disciple. From a sociological viewpoint, and you get the drift, it's just all sociology after that. You've had the theological justification the great theological justification for welcoming newcomers at church is the Great Commission. Hmm. Do you think it's wrong to justify good church welcoming using the Great Commission? <laughs> Do you think it's wrong to justify overseas mission using the Great Commission? This Lyft conference is about serving the nations 
not welcoming newcomers. So let's focus in on the Great Commission as theological justification for overseas missionary service. That sounds pretty safe. After all, Jesus in the Great Commission talks about going to make disciples of all nations. But to whom do you think Jesus is speaking? Is Jesus speaking to you and me? Is Jesus speaking to his apostles? And does that make a difference? Can Jesus be speaking to his original apostles and to us in the same command? Is every command to the disciples also a command to us? Is it okay to grab everything Jesus said to the apostles and turn it into a command for us? Or is that kind of exegetical flexibility a little bit dodgy? For example, I have an example for you. Let's, let's check it out. Jesus sends his disciples out on a similar mission in Matthew 10. Perhaps we could call it the slightly less great commission. Uh, turn to, to Matthew 10. Matthew 10. In your Bibles. Or have we got it on the screen? We've got it on the screen. There you go. You can watch the screen. Matthew 10, 5 to 10. These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the labourer deserves his food. Do you think this commission that Jesus gives to his disciples should also be your mission? Go nowhere among the Gentiles. We have a problem. Quick, change the name of the conference. I have an idea. How about this? <laughs> Not servants of the nation. Go nowhere among the Gentiles. Welcome to Lift 2019. Not servants, not by any way servants of the nations. If this is our mission, go nowhere amongst the Gentiles. Why do you not try to follow the commission Jesus gave to his disciples in Matthew 10, and yet you do try to follow the other commission that Jesus gave to the same disciples in Matthew 28? Does the Great Commission apply to you and me today? Should the Great Commission push us to think overseas to serve the nations? Or if it does apply, can you fulfil the Great Commission just as successfully in your home church in Sydney as long as you're a good welcomer? We have lots to think about, don't we? Let's get into it. As I've been thinking about how the Bible might theologically justify serving the nations, the place that I keep coming back to is the servant songs of Isaiah. So this weekend we're going to spend significant time looking at Isaiah's servant songs. We will, be, we will look at the background to those songs and then we'll look at the fulfilment of those songs. But we will be hovering around those servant songs in my Bible talks all weekend. So we're at point one, servant language. Point one, servant language. Servant language is very interesting in the Old Testament. Let me give you a brief tour. We need to start with the obvious, which is that sometimes servant language is actually used to, can anyone guess? It's actually used to describe someone who works as someone's servant. Who to thank it? It's true. Uh, in Genesis 24, Abraham sends the guy who works for him as his servant to find a wife for Isaac, that guy is unsurprisingly called a servant. That's where we need to start. But servant language is also used of people who are not specifically working as servants. Servant language is found quite a bit in the Old Testament as a sign of humility to others, as a token of respect. A good example is the way that Abraham speaks about himself to his angelic visitors in Genesis 18, up on the screen, verses 1 to 3. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favour in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Can you see Abraham calling himself the servant of his guests? This self-deprecating use of the title servant happens again when Jacob meets Esau in Genesis 32 after snaking him out of his inheritance. And it happens again when Jacob's sons present themselves before the unknown Egyptian ruler who turns out to be their brother in Genesis 42. It's a fairly common use of the word servant in the Old Testament. So it doesn't seem like Old Testament people minded referring to themselves as servants in deference to others. But it seems like it's a whole different thing to use the title servant to refer to someone else who might really have been important. You might remember a guy named Nabal from uh, the Old Testament. Book of 1 Samuel, his, his name literally means fool in Hebrew. You might also remember that in 1 Samuel 15 and 16, God rejected Saul as king and took his Holy Spirit from Saul. And in the very next chapter, God gave his Holy Spirit to David and anointed him as the next king of Israel. Saul's still officially on the throne. We know that David is the new anointed king. And then for 10 chapters, we watch as Saul becomes increasingly unhinged in attacking David and his desire to kill David. But we know that David is the anointed king. We know he has God's spirit. We know how that battle is going to end. But halfway through the vendetta against David, we have this fascinating little story about David and the fool, Nabal. David and his men are on the run from Saul and they pull into Nabal's farmhouse to ask for some supplies. And look at how the fool responded to David's polite request. Up on the screen, 1 Samuel 25, 10 to 11. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I have killed for my shearers and give it to men who come from I do not know where? Not a good response. Not a good idea to treat God's anointed king like he is just some runaway slave. David and his men show us just how bad an idea that is as they strap on their battle gear and head towards the farm, bent on destroying everyone and everything on the fool's farm. But the fool had a smart wife, Abigail. She acted quickly. She placated David's anger very cleverly provided for David and all his men everything they needed, she saved her whole family from certain death. Although even her wisdom could not save the fool from God's wrath, and he was dead within ten days. So in the Old Testament, it seems polite to refer to yourself as a servant, but perhaps impolite to refer to call someone else a servant particularly if they're important. But perhaps the shame of being called a servant is mitigated somewhat by whose servant you are accused of being. Do you think those who serve the royal family at Buckingham Palace feel ashamed to be called servants of the royal family? I don't think so. In Genesis 26, Abraham has the honour of being called God's servant on the screen. Uh, I think it's on the screen. Oh, no, uh, no. It's coming. There it is. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. There is a privileged servanthood, isn't there? It all depends on to whom you are serving. Others who share the privilege of that title in the Old Testament include Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Joshua, Solomon, David, and a number of the prophets share the privilege of being called servants of God. 
But it's not just Israelite royalty who had the privilege to be called servants of God. The whole nation, in a sense, had the privilege of being saved from being Pharaoh's servants in order to be God's servants. Up on the screen from Leviticus 25. For it is to me that, this is God speaking, for it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. The people of Israel were rightly understood to be servants of God. So it's no surprise when God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and addresses Israel, his whole nation, as my servant. Turning your Bibles to the book of Isaiah. Back to the book of Isaiah. It'd be great to have it open in front of you. And we're going to Isaiah 41. And we're at point two, Isaiah's servant. Isaiah 41. Point two on your notes, Isaiah's servant. This is what Isaiah says in chapter 41, verses 8 to 10. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Why would God's servant, the nation Israel, have reason to be dismayed? God's saying, be not dismayed. Why might they be dismayed? Well, look at what God says about his servant just a chapter later. Isaiah 42, verses 18 to 23. 42, 18 to 23. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoiled with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Israel has not been an attentive servant. They have been deaf, dumb and blind. They have failed to respond to God as they should have. And consequently, they have been plundered by their enemies as judgment from God. But that is all starting to change as the book of Isaiah turns a corner. What do you know about the book of Isaiah? Do you know much about the book of Isaiah? Do you know how it breaks up into roughly two pieces? There's a big break in the book of Isaiah. Um, it, it breaks neatly into two sections in exactly the same proportions as the whole Bible breaks neatly into two sections. You know there's 66 books in the Bible? Books 1 to 39 are in the Old Testament. Books 40 to 66 are in the New Testament. There are 66 chapters in Isaiah. Anyone want to guess what number books make up the first section? Books 1 to 39. Anyone want to guess the books make up books 40 to 66? 1 to 39, predominantly judgment. 40 to 66, predominantly comfort and hope. So as we move into the comfort section of Isaiah, God promises that he will change his sensory-challenged servant. Come over to chapter 44, verses 21 to 22. Chapter 44, 21 to 22. Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you, you are my servant. 
O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God is promising a wonderful future for his servant. But how will God bring about this great comfort and help for his servant? Ironically, Isaiah starts promising that God's help for his servant Israel will come through his servant. It's a bit weird, isn't it? And we start to see a really curious thing happening with servant language. It almost seems to get sharpened down in focus, starting out at the whole nation, if you like, and sharpened down so that it, well, it starts to sound like one individual. Come over to the first servant song in chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. Chapter 42, verses 1 to 4. <coughs> Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. And a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. The whole nation of Israel can be spoken about in servant language. But there seems to be more of an individual servant on view in this servant song. An individual who will be given God's precious Holy Spirit, like, well, other special individuals in Israel who had the privilege of being God's chosen king or God's chosen prophet. And did you notice that this spirit-empowered individual servant looks like he's going to be a benefit to more than just the nation of Israel? Did you see? This servant seems to be good news for all nations. And this is teased out a little bit more in the second servant song. Come over and we'll have a read of the second servant song. Chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. Chapter 49, verses 1 to 6. The second servant song. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In his quiver, he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that, that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honoured in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Verses 1 and 2 of this second servant song show us that this new individual servant is going to be born for this role. Verse 3 reminds us that this individual servant will somehow also be called Israel. Somehow the individual will represent the whole nation. And verse 6 tells us why this servant is good news for the nations. The servant's role is not just to represent Israel and bring Israel back to their God. Verse 6 tells us that's not a big enough challenge. The servant is going to not only bring Israel back to their God, he will also extend God's salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, I know you've seen the fulfilment of these servant songs coming for quite some time in this talk now, haven't you? You can see where we're going. You can see where we're heading. But I want to make explicit a really important principle that is 
well, really important for reading the Bible well. The principle is that Scripture interprets Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. And that is particularly important for understanding the Old Testament correctly. If the New Testament quotes or even alludes to an Old Testament verse, then understanding the way the New Testament uses that Old Testament verse or passage is the best way to understand the Old Testament verse or passage. Now, I know that you've seen where the fulfilment of these servant songs is going. I know that you've traced it, you're there already. You've already worked out how these servant songs are fulfilled. So why not turn with me to Acts 13 and confirm your hunch? Acts 13, verses 44 to 49. Acts 13, 44 to 49. Acts 13, from verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. I know you saw this coming, didn't you? And I know the question is too easy, but letting Scripture interpret Scripture, who is fulfilling the servant song here? Do you want to have a little chat with the person next to you? Who is fulfilling the servant song? Here's the question. With the person next to you, see what they think. Go for it. 30 seconds. Song here? Help us out. I know you saw it coming. Who? Jesus. <laughs> who? Paul and Barnabas. You didn't see that coming, did you? Paul and Barnabas are fulfilling the servant song in Acts 13. It's pretty clear the quote is from Servant Song 2, from verse 6 of Isaiah 49. But the quote is clearly applying the role of Isaiah's servant to the apostles Paul and Barnabas. Now that is interesting. How can apostles possibly be the great fulfilment of Isaiah's suffering servant? Well, before we go any further, I should direct your attention to Luke 2, where the same biblical author applies exactly the same verse from Isaiah to a different person. Up on the screen, Luke 2. Oh, no, are we, do we have it on the screen? No? Excellent, let's go on our Bibles, Luke 2. Luke 2, 25 to 32. Luke 2, 25 to 32. Lots of Bible flipping this weekend. I want to get you really into your Bibles. So keep flipping. Luke 2, verse 25. Now there's a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. There's the quote. This is how we expected Isaiah's suffering servant to be fulfilled. 
We have an old, righteous, devout Israelite waiting for the consolation or the comfort that God has promised in Isaiah 40 to 66. And into the temple walks two new parents with their newborn baby. Simeon takes the baby in his arms and basically says, I can die now. I can die now because I have seen the Lord's salvation. What has he literally seen? He's seen an eight-day-old baby. But that baby is the salvation of Israel because that baby, we've just been told through the quote from the second servant song, that baby is the fulfilment of Isaiah's servant songs. The clue is in verse 32, where song 2 is again quoted from exactly the same Isaiah 49 verse 6. This baby Jesus is being identified as the great fulfilment of Isaiah's servant songs. So Luke tells us that Jesus is definitely the great fulfilment of Isaiah's promised servant. But then Luke also tells us that Paul and Barnabas are also somehow the fulfilment of Isaiah's promised servant. How can they both be right? How can the apostles possibly fulfil the role of Isaiah's servant when Jesus, you would think, has already fulfilled it reasonably well? To understand the answer to that question, we need to understand the apostolic mission better. So we're at point three, the apostolic mission. Come over to Luke 24 with me, the passage we read before, Luke 24. We've got two disciples walking away from Jerusalem. They are disconsolate, meaning they feel unable to be consoled, unable to be comforted. And as they walk along disconsolate, a stranger joins them. Now we know the stranger is the risen Lord Jesus. They don't yet know that. They don't realise it until after he has left them. Look at what they say about their dashed hopes and dreams. We'll pick it up in verse 19. Verse 19. And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. That is the perfectly natural expectation from Israelites who know their servant songs. It is perfectly natural to expect that the servant of the Lord would bring redemption for Israel. Yet when we keep reading, look at how Jesus reframes their agenda. We're going to flick through to verse 44. Verse 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Can you see the agenda is super clear? This is the agenda that has been promised by the prophets, foreshadowed by Jesus throughout the gospel, and this is the the agenda that stands now almost fulfilled. The Christ has suffered death, tick. On the third day, he has risen from the dead, tick. Now the only agenda item left is the light going to the nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins must now be proclaimed to the nations, but not by the servant. It will be proclaimed by others in his name. The proclamation light will begin in Jerusalem and from the heart of Israel, the light will go out to every nation. That's the program, that's the agenda. Now we know who's done the dying and rising, but who will do the proclaiming? 
Well, the very next verse makes that clear. Let's pick it up, verses 48 and 49. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. We're not told much at this point about what it means to be a witness. But the clue is that they'll be clothed with power from on high, which in biblical language can only mean one thing. We're talking about God's Holy Spirit. Just like the servant was equipped for his task, these new witnesses will be equipped for their task with the same Holy Spirit of God. And equipped in that way, they will proclaim light to the nations. Can you see that the redemption of Israel is going to go out way beyond the borders of the promised land? Because the servant songs promised light to the Gentiles. If we flick forward ten verses in Luke's two-volume work, where do we arrive? Well, we arrive in Acts and we get another angle on the relationship between Jesus and his witnesses. Flick over to Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. Acts 1, verses 6 to 8. See if you can pick up some similar themes. Acts 1, 6 to 8. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Can you see the same themes popping up again? These themes must be important. This time it's that seemingly weird question in verse 6, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Again, the disciples know the promises that God has made about consoling his people, bringing comfort to Israel. But again, notice what Jesus does with their thinking. The servant songs have promised that this good news isn't just for the people of Israel. This good news is for the nations, a light for the nations. And again, the key to that light going to the nations is the apostles being equipped with God's spirit to be witnesses for Jesus. And again, it starts in the heart of Israel at Jerusalem and goes out to the ends of the earth. John's Gospel says the same thing. Listen to the way John speaks about the same agenda, the same program up on the screen, John 15, 26 and 27. But when the Helper comes, who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's the same agenda, isn't it? It's the same plan. The agenda is very clear. We just need to work out what it means to be a witness. Now, I guess when you start thinking about witness, I don't know what you're thinking, but I, I would think most people are thinking court cases. The person who sees something and has to testify in court to what they've seen. My question for you, though, is do you think court case witnessing is a good way of thinking about the apostolic witness? Does it have a weakness? Do you want to have a quick chat with the person next to you? There's a question on the screen. 30 seconds. See what they think. Go for it. Any weaknesses? One down front here. Court case witnesses often get wrong. Yeah, interesting. Other weaknesses? Over here. Uh, in a court case, the witnesses are used to provide evidence. They are the evidence. Okay, the witness is the evidence in a court case. Interesting. There was a hand over here. Yeah. They only have to answer when asked. Interesting. Yeah. And then was there a hand on the back? Over here. Limited to a select few. Limited to a select few. Yeah. Yeah. They're testifying about bad things. Maybe. Might be some good things there. Interesting. None of you have picked the big weakness that I think in the imagery. Maybe you've got it. <laughs> Let's keep going. I actually think the big weakness in thinking about the apostolic witness as like a court case witness is that court case witnesses 
always, pretty nearly always, have seen something randomly. They didn't set out to see it often. They saw it because they were in the right place at the right time. Yeah, what about the apostles? There's nothing random <coughs> about the, the disciples being in the right place at the right time in order to witness to the life, death and resurrection of the servant of the Lord. The disciples are much more like a justice of the peace witness. Is anyone here a JP? Excellent! I was wondering, I forgot you are, Simon. Simon, tell me, um, what, what do you witness? Okay. And so, do you ever, like, do you ever kind of randomly run up to someone and say, I just saw you sign something, would you like me to testify to that? So it doesn't often happen randomly. It's usually that you're asked to witness something, you witness it, and then you testify that you have witnessed. You are a great example, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> the apostles of Jesus are much more like a JP, a justice of the peace witness, than a court case witness. The apostles were selected and trained in advance so that they might be professional witnesses to the gospel events. Like a JP, they were selected and authorised to be the official witnesses who officially certify the truth of the gospel events. God's plan was always this way. The disciples were with Jesus throughout his life, death, resurrection and ascension so that they could be his witnesses to testify gospel light to the nations. In this way, the authorised apostles continue the servant's mission to the nations. Jesus is the great servant of the Lord that Isaiah promised. But as the apostles take their witness testimony to the nations, they can be rightly understood to be continuing the mission of the servant. But don't you and I also take that witness to the nations? Are we the servant of the Lord? Well, let's have a think about it. We're at point four, your apostolic mission. You can make a case that Christians still take their place in the same servant mission. Helping Israel find her consolation and helping nations receive the light that they have been promised. But in the New Testament, the servant songs are never applied to anyone beyond Paul and Barnabas after Jesus. Never applied beyond the apostles. So I would be very careful before going around calling yourself the servant of the Lord or Isaiah's servant. I think the better way of understanding our place in the servant's mission is to understand our relationship to the apostolic mission. Let's go back to where it all started tonight and think about the Great Commission. Can we put it back up on the screen? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, there it is. Is this command for us or just for the apostles? Is the Great Commission our mission or just the mission of the original apostles? Can you see that we're asking the wrong question? It's absolutely the wrong question. Just like Paul and Barnabas could be said to be fulfilling the servant's role when they carried the servant's gospel to the nations, you and I carry the apostles' mission on when we carry the apostles' witness to the nations. We don't have our own mission that is somehow separate from the apostolic mission. We carry the apostles' mission forward as we carry their apostolic witness. So in a sense, the whole of Christianity has only ever been about a mission of 12 witnesses carried forward by many Christians into many places 
as we carry their witness to the nations. And that is why Paul goes to great lengths instructing Timothy to guard the witness well, to guard the gospel message. 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 14, I think it's on the screen, oh, it's a bit small but it will get by. 2 Timothy 1, 8 to 14, Paul says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which has now been manifested through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of the sound words you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And if we can go to the next slide, just to add a little bit more from... Oh, we don't have uh, 1 Timothy 2. Sorry, 2 Timothy 2 on there. Let me just go there. 2 Timothy 2. Verses 1 and 2, 2 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The Apostle's witness is spoken about in a number of different ways in the passages we've just looked at. In verse 8, can we go back there? Just go back to the slide for a moment. Verse 8, it's the testimony about our Lord. Verse 12, it's what has been entrusted to me. Verse, verse 13, the sound words you have heard from me. Verse 14, the good deposit entrusted to you. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. Can you see how much the witness of the Apostles is the key to the mission after the Apostles? There is no Christian mission without that apostolic witness. That is why Timothy needs to make sure he guards it really, really well. You and I are much more like Timothy than like Paul. We are not the suffering servant himself. We are not even the apostles who continue fulfilling the mission of the servant. We are the Timothys who guard the deposit carefully because that deposit is the apostolic witness that shows forth the servant in all his glory. We guard the, de the deposit carefully because that apostolic witness redeems Israel and brings the light of the gospel to the nations. So let's get practical about how all of this might play out in our lives and in our ministry. Can I ask how you feel about committing your life to guarding a deposit, to guarding and forwarding on that apostolic deposit? Does it matter that the deposit is becoming increasingly shameful? and potentially life-threatening in some parts of the world. How do you feel about guarding with your life a shameful, dangerous deposit? I ask this because most of you have the ability to guard much more glamorous deposits with companies like HSBC, Westpac, Macquarie Bank, perhaps even the Reserve Bank. You are probably the kind of person who can get a job guarding deposits that look much more glorious. You might even have a job doing that right now. And you know, if you commit your life to guarding those kind of glorious deposits, your parents will probably be very proud of you. 
They won't mind you moving to Singapore or London or New York to guard those kind of deposits. In fact, they probably won't complain about you moving to any part of the globe if you are doing it to guard those kinds of glorious deposits. They may feel differently if you move to another part of the globe to guard the shameful deposit that is the apostolic witness to Jesus. Your friends also will look at you differently based on which type of deposit you commit your life to guard. If you move to China to guard deposits with HSBC, your friends will probably look with awe upon your opportunity. If you move to exactly the same place in China to guard the apostolic witness, your friends will probably think you are out of your mind. I want to tell you about two of my relatives as we finish this talk. We'll call the first one Darren. Darren is a lovely young man about my age. Uh, I wanted to say that with a straight face. He left university to work with an investment bank. He took up the bank's invitation to move to Bermuda to do his job. How would you like to get the opportunity to move to Bermuda to work with an investment bank and to be paid seriously well to do it? He met a lovely young lady in Bermuda who'd also been moved there by her bank to do something similar. They fell in love. They got married. They returned to live in her home country. They now have two teenage boys. They live in a really nice home in Luxembourg, which is not a bad part of Europe, to have a nice home. They still work for the investment banks, and they get still paid really well for doing it. They holiday each summer on the coast of Italy. Life is pretty good. And they are lovely people, and I love them very much. And I think Darren's story can probably be your story. I'm pretty sure you've probably got the same kind of ability to get the same kind of job that could set you up for a really nice future. Right at the outset of this weekend, you need to know that Darren's story can probably be your story. And what we are asking you this weekend to consider doing is to give your life to a very different story for the sake of serving Jesus. Although we are not the servant, nor the apostles who provide the authority of witness, there are two things that Christians today share with the servant and the apostles. And the first thing is we share the suffering. Jesus invited Paul to share in his suffering, the suffering of the servant, with those chilling words to Paul's reluctant evangelist, Ananias, up on the screen, Acts 9, 15 and 16. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, for he, he Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The Apostle Paul fulfilled the role of the servant not just in taking the light of the gospel to the Gentiles, but also in suffering dearly as he did so. And that same Apostle, years later as he neared the end of his life, invited Timothy to share that same suffering. 2 Timothy 2 verse 3, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Let me tell you about another relative of mine. Auntie Betty is now 95 years old. And she lives in substandard government housing in Southampton, England. She was born and bred in Sydney a long time ago. She heard the gospel at Sunday school and grew up trusting Jesus and being willing to serve him with her life. 
In her early 20s, she studied nursing and she felt called to the mission field. She went off to Theological College in Sydney in the late 40s and then presented for missionary service in Africa. Her father and her brothers were against the idea. They apparently said, if you go, don't bother coming back and don't ever expect to receive anything from us. As a young single nurse, still in her 20s, she disappointed her father and her brothers, and she trusted God with her life. She set sail from Sydney Harbour to missionary service in Ghana. Her father had not spoken to her for some time before she set sail. On the day she left, on the day the boat left Sydney Harbour, she thinks her father might have gone into the city to watch the boat leave, but he didn't reveal himself and he didn't say goodbye. On the mission field, she met a single English man who was also serving in Ghana. They married, they had two children. Her children could only be schooled back in England at a pretty tough missionary kids school. Aunty Betty saw her kids once a year, on a good year. That doesn't happen anymore, for good reason. It was pretty tough. After many years serving in that way, Aunty Betty and her husband retired back to England. Their children have grown up and loved the Lord. Many of their grandchildren love the Lord and now there are great-grandchildren and they are getting prayed for very well by Aunty Betty. Her husband died 10 years ago, but Aunty Betty still lives on faithfully in her government housing with next to no money and she still evangelises nearly anything that moves. <laughs> you are probably the kind of person that can live Darren's story but this weekend, we are asking you to consider living a story more like the one Auntie Betty has lived for the sake of serving the Lord Jesus. And if you are going to commit your life to an Auntie Betty kind of story, the good news is that you don't do it alone. Even if you go to the mission field as a single missionary, you don't go alone because our generous God gives his spirit to be with his people. That's the second thing in common. God equipped his servant with his spirit for the task of serving the nations. God equipped his apostles with his spirit for their important task of bearing the authority of witness to the servant. And God still equips Christians like you and me with his precious spirit to help us with our task of guarding that good deposit and communicating it forward to the nations. I had the privilege of catching up with Aunty Betty two years ago. We talked a lot about her life and ministry and she kept telling me that God had always proven faithful. And I got the clear feeling that she did not regret the sacrifices she has made to serve the nations with the gospel in any way. Let's pray. Our Father, we are very thankful for our great servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ. We are so thankful for everything you have done for us through this great servant. Thank you for his faithfulness even to death on a cross. Thank you that through his death, resurrection and ascension, Gentiles like us can come to share with your Old Testament people in the wonderful fulfilment of your promises. Our Father, we recognise the enormous privilege you've given to us to be part of your people. And we recognise that being part of your people means carrying on the servant's mission by guarding the deposit of the apostles' witness. 
Father, we want to be the kind of people that will guard that deposit faithfully and pass it on faithfully to the nations. We recognise that that will involve suffering and we're so thankful that you provide your spirit to help us in the task. This weekend, Father, please help us to think very hard about our role in your great servant mission to the nations. We ask, Lord, that you'll help us to think about the role that we should play. Please help us, Father, to understand your word better so that we might live by your word and take our place in the servant's beautiful mission to the nations.